This is Jimmy Corrine, and you're listening to another great episode of Improv Nerd. Our guest today is Teresa Mulligan Rosenthal. She is a writer and producer for such television shows as Maria Bamford's Lady Dynamite, which I strongly recommend. It's I love that show. I love any show that deals with depression and self-help groups and stuff like that. She also wrote on How I Met Your Mother and Whitney. I've known Teresa since the uh, late 90s here in Chicago. We were lucky enough to perform together on a group called Jazz Freddy, and we worked together at the Second City Communications, which was the business theater. We wrote corporate shows at at Second City. She was also a member of the Second City Touring Company and of one of its resident stages, the Second City Northwest. We talked to Teresa in this interview about how her mother got her started in improv, and I never knew this. Her mother and Teresa both started in improv classes together, and uh, she tells some, some wonderful stories about that. Also, how she made the transition from improviser slash actor to writing for television, and how her friends in improv helped her land her first couple jobs. And my favorite topic, or one of my favorite topics, she talked about how she's overcome her insecurities. But before we get to that episode with Teresa, I just want to say on May 5th, uh, I turned 53. Uh, It was my birthday. And typically, uh, around my birthday, a week before and a week after, I go into this deep, deep major depression. Because what I do is I compare uh, my career to uh, all my friends that I started out in Chicago. And uh, I've basically, it's basically about uh, two weeks of just feeling sorry for myself. But this time it was different. I don't know what it was. I, I think a lot of it has to do with being a new father uh, with and, you know, having a, a wonderful daughter, Betsy. And and uh, so I think a, a, something changed. And this year, I felt grateful. And uh, I had a lot of really nice messages on Facebook. I had some students reach out and say how much my teaching has meant to them. And uh, on Sunday or Saturday, I'm sorry, my birthday was on Friday. On Saturday, we had a group of people over, a small group of five people, two couples and um, a friend of ours. And... Uh, it was the first birthday that um, my wife said to me, she said, I don't want you to do any work because what I do is I usually, I invite people over and then I, then I, you know, I, I'm putting food out and I'm preparing food and I'm putting plates on the food and I have, I have no time to visit with anybody and have a conversation, which I realize I'm just invo- uh, avoiding intimacy. And, and Lauren said, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this for you. I am going to be in charge of all the food. Well, that means that I had a lot of conversations, and uh, they were really good conversations, and it was the first birthday party, as another milestone, that I did not feel resentful or angry afterwards. I had nothing, after everybody left, and usually I've talked about this in my family growing up, we would wait till everybody left after like a holiday party or something like that. My parents and my brothers and sisters, we all complain about our relatives. Well, this time, all my friends left. And I had nothing but gratitude in my heart. I could not come up with one single resentment. So you know what? I am making progress, people. I just want to let you know that. It was a one it was one of the best birthdays I've ever had. And I really want to thank Lauren, my wife, and my daughter Betsy, and all my friends, and all my students, and all my friends from improv and over the years who wished me a happy birthday. So I hope this isn't too um, too cheesy for you, but it, it, I, I can't tell you how much gratitude I felt. It lasted for about 48 hours, but as you know, it, it wore off. So here it is. Enough about me. You're going to love this. This is the Teresa Mulligan Rosenthal episode. Uh, it was a phone interview from Los Angeles, California. Enjoy this. She gives so much great information, especially if you want to be a writer. Um, You're going to love this. Here it is. Enjoy. Teresa Mulligan, (laughs) thank you so much for being our guest on Improv Nerd. Thank you for having me. 
Um, I'm now very you, excited. I am. I'm very excited because I haven't talked to you in a long time. Yeah, I haven't seen you in years. I I was in last I saw you. I was in Chicago and saw your hilarious show. And I'm forgetting what what the, even the name of the show was, but it was funny. Um, I don't know. <laughs> speaking of Chicago, you grew but, up in Gary, Indiana, and you came from a very funny family. In fact, you said your family often had been kicked out of bars at closing time. Can you tell us a little about that? Yes, that was usually if we had like either a funeral or I don't know, a get together where we had uncles and aunts and we would just close up the place. Um, we got thrown out of Yaxies, you know, Yaxies. Yeah, on diversity. It was yeah. known for uh, its chicken wings. Yes. Um, and and were you guys really also, loud and stuff or obnoxious from um, your brothers? We just stayed until, you know, until they really, really wanted to close. <laughs> and we were still, we were loud, I think, too. I'm not sure. But, um, yeah, we just, uh, it's a fun family. They, uh, you know, my brother's really funny. Oh, my sister, both my brothers are very funny and my sister and um, my mom's hilarious. Uh, and my dad as well. Uh, and his brothers and that was, you know, we would hang out with, uh, a lot at his brother's houses when we were little. And that was just everyone dying, laughing, playing spoons. Do you ever play spoons? No, I don't. Oh my gosh. It's a, it's a game where you have, it's kind of like musical chairs, except with spoons and you're, and you're trying to get rid of your cards and, or, uh, I think it's like four of a kind. You're trying to get four of a kind. If somebody gets a four of a kind, they grab a spoon and there's not enough spoons for everybody. And we would play that and that would get really rowdy. This is not that interesting, the story. <laughs> doesn't but, make my family sound funny, but. <laughs> well, it all depends how they played spoons, I guess. Now, but, but your mom, speaking of, your mom did, I remember, because we started out together here in Chicago. And yeah. you were moving up the ladder, you know, at Second City, and you had done a show with me called Jazz Freddy. And all of yes. a sudden, your mom comes along, and she's taking improv classes. Yes. What she, was that like? It was fun. It was, uh, she originally talked me into taking the classes. I was in a breakup, and she, I was moping around, and she's like, let's go up to Chicago. I hadn't moved there yet. Um, <clears throat> I think I moved there like six months later. And because Gary... Uh, for people who don't know, is like only an hour away from Chicago. And uh, so we went up there and we did Players Workshop in Second City. And I was I was very like, it was good because you had somebody to, to talk to about the class afterwards. Like we'd always be able to talk about our scenes and, you know, how well we did or, or not. And, uh, and I remember we had Michael Gelman uh, and he... I'd get there and he'd be eating a hot dog every class. And I was like, why are you eating a hot dog every class? And he's like, one of my students gives it to me. And then I told my mom and she's like, oh yeah, it's me. I have a huge crush on him. <laughs> and uh, it was pretty funny. Anyway, but they, uh, we had a blast. It was really fun. And, and I, I always kind of thought, well, everyone thinks we're weird mother, daughter, you know, taking classes together and I just tried to like not care about that because it, you know, she had, she had gone back to school when I went to college. I was the last one home um, of the kids. And, and so she took theater and business. So she had already been in theater and I had taken audiology and speech and hearing pathology at Purdue and uh, then switched to communications because I got into clinical and didn't like it. And then you know, so I, you know, but I had done stuff, at, you know, uh, plays and stuff in high school. So she, she really kind of led the way of like, let's go up. This will be fun. Um, we signed up for being extras too while in Chicago. And um, I ended up being a stand in on um, a movie for a few months. And I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. I want to be in the business in whatever way I can be. Well, the um, other the other interesting thing is, um, I would imagine back then there wasn't many like mom age people doing improv. So your mom really had yeah. to kind of stick out. Yeah, she did. She was like forty. I think she was forty two, forty three, and um, you know everybody, all of us were in our twenties, early twenties. So yeah, it she did stick out. She uh, and she ended up. 
after I got hired to tour and all that, she ended up going and doing stand-up for a couple years, a few years. I don't know how long she did it. I think three years. But um, she she didn't really like touring around, so she didn't do it for that long. But And she but, did, like... Oh, go ahead. I never, I never, you know, I never knew you took classes together with her. Oh yeah, we did. We went through all through uh, Players Workshop and and um, and then Second City together. Did you ever like, you know, like I would imagine, you know, did you ever feel bad like you were heavier in the show than she was? Let's say when you do a, a level five show or she does a scene and it doesn't work, uh, d- d- b- you know, bombs like we all bomb in class and we continue <laughs> to bomb. Was there anything like, you know, like? You know, how was that dealing with that kind of stuff? Um, no, there was never any weirdness with that. It's, uh, you know, it's like if you're in um, class with a good friend, you know, I, I, and you're either a person who compares yourself or you're not, and I'm not really. So, um, you know, we never really thought about how many scenes we were in or not. We just had a lot of fun doing it. And um, she was always great at one-liners in scenes. Um, like zingers and scenes, uh, I guess you'd call them. And, uh, and she also had taken improv at, in college, she went to IUN. And so she already had like kind of a base and, you know, she was already, uh, could hold her own, you know, kind of thing. And would you probably have not done it had your mom not done the classes with you? I really don't think I, I mean, I wouldn't have thought of it. She was the one who was like thought of going up there and, and taking improv. Um, and it really was just to get me out of the, the slump I was in after college when I first got out of college. Um, and it was just for fun. And then I was like, oh, no, I want to continue doing this and and did it, you know, for 20 how many years now? <laughs> Twenty five years at plus. And when you got um, out of co- when you got out of college, and, and I believe you also did theater in high school. Um, yeah, uh, you did Pippin twice, according to my research, <laughs> and that is, you're very proud of. How did you get? How did I, you get that? I, you get you it did, online. You get it oh, online. Okay. All this stuff is online. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Yes, I did Pippin uh, in high school, and then I did, and I was just one of the leading players, dancers. Just, but uh, yeah, just chorus. Um, and then, and um, then I did it in the summer at my mom's uh, college, IUN, and we, she was the grandmother, and I was Catherine. So we did that. I think that was before we went to uh, do the improv classes together up in Chicago. We did that play, and that was really super fun. And then I actually did it a third time at Theater on the Lake. Uh, many years later in my twenties. And that was, you know, more um, professional kind of production. That was super fun. And then recently this uh, was last year, last year or the year before I took my mom to um, see Pippin out here and uh, with Andrea Martin and we were both sitting there and it was, it started and we, we both started crying because it had such great memories for both of us um, together, you know, doing that play together. So after you finish, uh, players workshop in second city, you then get hired by second city, the touring company, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I toured for a year and then I did the North Northwest stage for one show and then they closed Northwest and we went on, um, we got picked to go to the, um, Edinburgh festival for a month. So we did that. And that's when I decided I was going to move out to LA uh, right before that trip. Um, and then, so I came home and I was only home for a couple of weeks and then I moved out to LA. And also we worked together at the business theater at second city where we would do yeah. corporate shows, but there was also another time we worked together. And I don't know if you remember this, it was during Christmas season here in Chicago. They had a, the Marshall Fields, which was a big department store. <laughs> yes. And we were both jingle elves. Do you remember this? <laughs> yes. And tell me oh what, God, what it was like for that. you to be a jingle elf. Because <laughs> in those days, I believe you. we were all scrimping. I know you didn't come from oh much money, right? No. And that, we was, a, and that was a great gig because that was like $50 <laughs> yeah. an elf gig. It was. I also, that was super fun. Cause it was indoors and not in like I did once I played elf, you know, TV's elf, the, the, the furry, furry uh, the animal, 
ALF, yeah. not ELF, and uh, for a Northwestern game for UNICEF, and it was like 100 degrees, literally 100 degrees. I think it was like 101, and I was in this big furry outfit that I couldn't see, and the, the inside of the mask smelled like vomit, no joke from a previous uh, person in there and uh, horrible. So the, so the, you know, the Marshall Fields elf gig was a walk in the park. That was breeze. Cause it was indoors and it was, and you were there too, which was, yeah, well, it was a that bunch was of fun. improvisers that, yeah, that we would do it. Who else was there? Uh, Laura Kraft did it. Matt <laughs> Walsh did it, but we'd all be oh assigned. Like, I think I was assigned once to the governor of Illinois and his wife and you'd have to hand out <laughs> teddy bears. Some people had to work out in the cold, you know, and you, it was, the, it was really a tough outfit. I think you had like, um, it was like it, the, you had like the felt, it was made out of felt and, the, and yeah. tights basically. Yeah, felt and tights, and then yeah. some kind of weird shoes. Yes, obviously, because we were elves. And it wasn't. Um, it wasn't built for the. It was not designed for the cold, as I remember. No, no. Did but you? I, have, I didn't have to go outside. I don't think because I don't remember anything brutal about that. Any other uh, other jobs that you had in Chicago? That yes, were... I had. I had rent a nerd. What was um, that? I don't know if you remember that I did this. It was. Um, you would go to we. You know, there was the main company, Rent-A-Nerd, who was owned by uh, this guy named Mike, and he was super nice, and he would just call you and say, like, okay, you have a gig here Friday night, this birthday, and then you'd call the person who hired um, Rent-A-Nerd about the person you were kind of roasting, and it was like a, it was like a seeing telegram, but you didn't seeing you showed up as a nerd, and you did kind of a short roast of them, and they were 15 minutes long. And I was, um, I was Gertrude Steinwell. That was my character. <laughs> it's so crazy. And I had like a curler in my hair and like just disheveled and looked very nerdy with the nerdy glasses. And you had to give them a beanie and a certificate for being a nerd. And usually I showed up as an old girlfriend if it was a guy. And I did weddings. I did little kids parties. And, but it was, I cleaned up. It was just, I would do like two or three a weekend and they were, you know, I think a hundred dollars each and plus they plus tip. So it was a really great, like alternative to, to waitressing. Cause you just went and did a little bit of comedy and you could, you could add as much of your own stuff as you wanted to. So I did that and it was super fun and you just get all the dirt on this person to, you know, do a roast of them. Did any, anyone, did anyone go bad? Did anyone not get the joke? Yes. There were, I once got um, hired by my boyfriend's cousin and for some reason it was just the worst situation. It was with a lot of kids in a very big place. They could barely hear me. And I was bombing. I just bombed so hard that my cousin, uh, his cousin came out and said, can you please just stop now? <laughs> and it was horrible. And then another time I went into the wrong wedding because it was this big, like those big, huge places that have three or four banquet halls in them. And I just went in. I didn't know there was more than one banquet hall. So I just went into the first one I saw. I go in and I'm like, I, st I literally stopped the wedding because that's what I'm supposed to do or the reception. I'm supposed to do that. I go up to the bride and groom at their front table and I'm like acting like I'm his ex-girlfriend pissed about him getting married and doing this roast. And, and all of a sudden he's like, who's Bob and Linda? <laughs> Cause I was calling them by name on my, and, and I'm like, Oh, I'm in the wrong wedding. And it, it got, you know, everybody died laughing. And then I just grabbed all my stuff that I had given him and, and left and then found the right wedding. Um, so that was pretty embarrassing. When you think of your time in Chicago, you know, doing Second City and, and certainly being in Jazz Freddy, is, is there a memory or a scene or something that sticks out for you? Um, there's, um, there's a scene that my mom keeps telling. <laughs> I don't know why she keeps telling the same story about uh, that we were in there, this is about like being a mother and daughter in the class. And when we first started doing it, we decided not to tell people because we thought that they would think it was weird. So when you started was, doing the class, you wouldn't tell anybody. When we anybody. started doing the class, yeah. Well, how and, did you do uh, that? She would come in first and you'd come in second? Would you I plan think it? we just kind of acted like we were friends. We didn't go overboard with like the, you know, um, 
really trying to hide it. We just didn't say that we were mother and daughter because so, she had gone back to her maiden name, so she had a different name, last name. And, so how'd you guys get busted? Well, then, then slowly it just started coming out because we couldn't, we didn't really want to keep it up for too long. <laughs> it kind of got tiring, and it didn't really matter once we got to know everybody. Um, but one time I was on stage, I guess, and, and uh, there was a scene where I was going to have sex with a guy in a, in the scene. And I like reached in the side table and did the unrolling of, of a condom, <laughs> like object work of that. And, um, this I think was just in class and, um, the guy next to her in our class leaned over and goes, what do you think of your daughter doing that? in a scene and she said well at least she's practicing the safe sex and she always tells that as a funny story of like uh yeah of just it, somebody being like checking in with her anytime I did some, something semi-dirty um and then Which, it, as you know I do a lot yes I know well you had that reputation right I think I did yeah <laughs> we're kidding you always played very very clean as I remember I did Okay. Why I did you like think sometimes I went blue, but, uh, but only in con, you know, when it was, uh, in context, you know, when it wasn't out of line. What did you, what did you take away from your experience in Chicago? Um, it was just the best time. Like when I look back, I just, it's the golden years of like doing improv there because you could, you could put up a show anywhere any little storefront place, which we did. And, you know, it was really all of these talented, great people who found each other and did improv in Chicago. And it was just like, uh, to me, that time is, is like magical in my memory because we all became friends and it was all really nice people and fun people. And, uh, you could experiment, you could do, you know, you can do that now. I mean, everybody does now too. Um, but for me, it was, it was my, you know, of course, my experience with an improv community and you, you did just feel like you had your people. I found my people and that was really cool. And in some of my research, you had, you, you had said, um, that, uh, when, when you got to Los Angeles, it's really important not to show your insecurity. And you felt that you had showed some of your insecurity when you got to Los Angeles early in your career. I, I, this is insecurity is something I've struggled with my, my, my whole life. And I yeah, know me too. for me back in the nineties, cause we, there were so many great people we, we got to perform with. I was just plagued with insecurity. Did you have a similar experience? Yes, I always have had, a, I still have insecurity. I mean, anytime I start a new job and I have to go in a new writer's room, it is like first day of school, meeting everyone, and then you've got to really be, I really have to push past like my insecurities and be able to, you know, pitch and, and be on my game. So I, and I always struggle with that. And with improv, I've, I'm always scared to death and I, I just fake it till I make it kind of thing. I just get in there and, you know, I just feel like there's so much of it that is mustering up your confidence to do it and, and then staying in the moment with the person you're improvising with and building together. Um, but yeah, I've always had the worst, um, I don't want to say the worst self-esteem because in other areas and, and I'm somewhat confident in general, but I have, yeah, crippling insecurities. <laughs> it's terrible. I can relate. Is, is, do you do therapy? I do a lot of therapy. And... I do therapy. I have done hypnotherapy. I hate to ever admit that. I, I did it why, once. I did once. Yeah, it, it did really not work. Worked. It did oh, it work worked for me, but I it... had to go back like every week. And I've gone a couple times when I was on shows where I felt a little bit more intimidated and I was just getting in my head a lot and, um, not for, not for stage shows, but for probably should have done it for that too. But, um, for shows where I'm actually getting paid to write and all that. So I, I just really, once I was starting to get in my head, I was like, Oh, I got to do something about this. Cause you know, this is my job and I have to be able to produce and pitch and be good at it. So, um, so what would they, what, what, what was it like for confidence? Cause usually when you hit, for confidence. Yeah. Okay. 
yeah, getting out of my own way. And, you know, I know that when I, uh, go to the therapist, it's often, he often says, um, you know, you have the proof behind you that you are a writer. Cause I, you know, I always feel like I'm an, I'm an improviser who be, who backed into writing. Um, you know, and of course we started writing at, um, second city business theater and you, you write to put your shows up there, but I just never, you know, I never set out to be a writer. I just did that. It, I, it kind of evolved from the improv and, but now I've been writing professionally for 20 years out here. So I feel like it's still not clear, you know, (laughs) like I still have to be told by my therapist, no, you're a writer. You have to start having the confidence of a writer. And I'm like, well, that's kind of an oxymoron, (laughs) the confidence of a writer. (laughs) So maybe that does prove I'm a writer that I have no confidence. Um, Tell us how you got your first writing job. uh, Well, I was doing, um, I had just done a one woman show to get an agent and of course I wrote that, but, um, and then, uh, there were some people doing the, a, a show, they got a show at MTV called blame the blame game. And it was off of Sue your ex that had run for, I don't know how long at that point at, um, improv Olympic. And so Cara McNamara, who's a friend of mine through second city through touring with her, she did the Edinburgh festival, um, tour with us. And she had said, Oh, submit your packet. And, um, you should be, you know, you should write on the show. Uh, and I had not really thought about pursuing writing as a career at that point, but I was like, okay, yeah, I'll submit. And then I interviewed with the producer, Barry Posnick, who ended up, um, creating, um, are you smarter than a fifth grader? Uh, that's his claim to fame anyway. But at the time, um, you know, he was, I don't even know what he had done before that, but anyway, I ended up getting the job through their recommendation of me and, uh, Chris Reed was on it and Jason Weiner, I think you probably remember. Sure. Um, and, um, Paul Valencourt and it was super fun. Laura Kraft ended up coming on season two. I think it was, oh, maybe she was on season one. Um, and Chris Reed, did I mention him? Yeah. He he played the judge. He was, he was the judge. Yeah. And then Kara and Jason were the lawyers and it was just super fun. It was just writing a mock trial of uh, people's breakups. And I did that for two seasons. And then I went on to another show called uh, head trip that was taking music videos and dubbing them. It was just basically like the dubbing game um, improv game. And we dub like what the people, what the singers are actually thinking in the video and that was fun because I got to do like, um, we had a sound booth right in the, um, office and I would, I got to do Cher and JLo and Courtney Love and all the, all the female singers. It was super fun for, to, uh, dub them. And, uh, then I went back to Blame Game as head writer because it was still going on. I think that it was the fourth season by then. And I went and did that. Then Peter Marietta, I had been working, doing an improv show with him. I've been, doing Stacy's not here for like seven years with him and teaching improv at his, uh, improv him and Eliza's improv studio out here bang. And he said, it was just about the time too, that I was thinking, I'd really like to get on a show where I write for characters that come back, you know, and tell story and all of that. And, you know, was thinking about getting into sitcom and he said, you know, write a couple of specs and I'll take them into my agent, which he did, which I did. And he did. And so then I got signed with CAA and, uh, and then did another show, um, that CAA got me that was called Kings of comedy. It was a sketch show and we had roots as our band and they flew me to New York with some other writers and we wrote, um, and, and Tyler Perry was on it and Nisi Nash and a bunch of other, and then some other standups, Earthquake and, and a few other people from around the country. And it was, that was super fun to do. Um, and we were there for about a month. And then that was um, at the same time as Cedric the Entertainer had his show and his got picked up instead of ours. So that, that didn't go anywhere. And then Peter had his show Greetings from Tucson and he hired me on that. So he gave me my first sitcom job 
and he's responsible for my entire career <laughs> of, of sitcom writing, of getting me started. So, and, and let's um, go back yeah, to so. writing a spec, spec, spec script because yeah. I think, you know, a lot of improv, you know, we take improv classes, a lot of improvisers, they don't know how to write a spec script. So they say, we need you to write a spec script. It's a 22-minute episode of a, a TV show. And it can be a, pretty intimidating. How did you yeah. how did you approach it when 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 you were given that assignment? Well, I I wrote for the shows that I liked. I wanted to do two different, very different shows, and I liked Sex and the City very much. So I that was I knew I was going to do a Sex and the City, and then um, the other one I chose was King of the Hill because I I thought oh if I do an animation that's much different and um, I'll have a variety then and. And I had already um, written for um, a packet. I wrote a pilot. Um, and I wrote it when I first got out here. I, I don't know the timeline on that, but I, it must have been after I was already writing uh, professionally because I don't know why I would write that. But um, I wrote it off my one-woman show, and so I had that too. And um, what I did, I just asked my agent, um, and you know, anybody out here can – do that or in Chicago, even, um, you just get spec scripts of, um, of those shows or, you know, the produced, you can get, you can get them now, the produced, um, just to see the format and everything of how to write it. That's what I did. And then, um, you know, I really, I do credit uh, second city business theater for knowing, like we had to write those shows and I know that they were corporate shows, you know, that were very different, but we had to write them pretty quick and they were, you know, usually half hour to an hour show. And we, we mixed in some best of, but we also had to write scenes. So that really helped me like know how to just kind of buckle down and get the work done. And, um, you know, and I just kind of thought of stories I wanted to, that I thought were funny to tell, um, on the show and, you know, taking from kind of real life stuff too for the sex in the city stuff, dating stuff. And, um, yeah. And then just wrote them. I'm really good if I have an, a deadline. Like if somebody tells me, give me a spec in a couple of weeks, I will have it done in a couple of weeks. Like I'll stay up till five in the morning and do it. And, um, get and it you'll done. even so make up, you'll, you'll even make up deadlines. Yes. I, I used to always do that with, when I lived with Blondell, Brian Blondell, Brian Blondell great improviser. Yeah. Yeah. He's awesome. Yeah. And I would, I would tell him like, okay, I have to have the first act to you by Friday. And, um, he, and, and this was to do those scripts actually that we're talking about. Um, and he'd be like, okay. And I said, it might be a really shitty draft, but I'm going to, you know, I'll, I'll have it. And I would stay up till like, of course, because of my procrastination and fear and all of that, uh, I would, and, you know, schedule too. I would, I would stay up till five in the morning, Thursday night, finishing that first act and getting it to him. And then, you know, he never gave me notes. That wasn't his job at that point. I mean, he would say it was good. I was like, just don't like, tell me it's horrible because I, I'm new and I don't, I probably can't take that. But, um, you know, his job was just to be the person I had to hand it into on a certain date. And then, and then we'd set the next, when the next act was due and so on. And, um, it was the way, the only way I could have written the, any, anything. We got to take a quick break here and then we'll be right back after this. Is that your cat in the background? It is. She wants in where I am. Well, I'm, I'm just tell her, let her know that I'll be interviewing her next week. So just let her know that I haven't gotten back to her. The yeah, thing that she's I, in the background going, that's not how it went at all. Um, the other thing that I, I've always appreciated and respected you, you, you use fear as a motivator. You've been able to use oh, yeah. fear as a motivator. Can you explain that to me? Because I just crawl up in a bowl when I get afraid. Oh. Yeah, well, I um, come from blue-collar workers who were very poor, and you sank or swam, and it was kind of like, I feel like a shark who, if I quit swimming, I will die. So <laughs> so I just kind of have to keep going with it, and I, and I do think, like, it's um, fear of failure and fear of success, success too, 
but more fear of failure because of the insecurity. Like I feel like, oh, well, it's going to be terrible. And how am I going to write this? And all of those things go into your, in your head the whole time. Um, and even on shows, when I'm on shows, I'll at least once a season on a show, um, hasn't happened a while, in a little while, but I'll call one of my best friends crying, going, I'm in the middle of the script. I don't know how to do this scene. Like it wasn't broken well or whatever it was. Like I just break down at times because I'm just so afraid and I'm handing it into a network and all of that and everybody's going to see it. And, you know, it just all feel felt high pressure at the time. And, you know, the times I didn't do that to myself, I, I feel like I had better scripts when I was able to get into a good mental state and just breeze through it, through it and just do it and not judge it and not judge myself and, and let those insecurities creep in. Then I, I felt like it went much smoother. Well, um, and I, I, the, the, I think the real trick, and you can help me out because you have the experience. I'm just asking the question. When you're writing and you wrote for How I Met Your Mother, you're writing uh -huh. for a hit network sitcom. There's got to be tremendous pressure uh, for, for a, a yeah. job like that. How, and to be funny, like you just mentioned, it's really important to be relaxed. How do you be funny under pressure? Um, I think that it, I think that I've always been really, really grateful that I had the, the really, the, all the years of improv under my belt by then, because I felt like, uh, I can naturally look at something and add jokes and, and that was just from muscle memory for doing it, you know, six shows a week, every week for at that point, I think it was 20 years or so, 20 plus years. So, you know, you do get, and also like when you're doing improv, you have to advance the story and you know, the game of the scene, uh, right away with your partner. Once you get in a groove, like into the scene. And so that really helped me with writing scenes when I, especially when I was afraid, cause I would stop and I'd go, okay, what's, what can the game of this scene be? I know what the scene's about and, but I need like either a cold open or I need something to get this scene going and what can be that game or what can be that interesting thing that starts them into this. Um, what if because it, I, sometimes we didn't go over that in the room, you know, sometimes you have to add stuff to, um, certain parts of it, um, that are your own and, and your own way to get into the scene, your own way to tell that, that story that's in that scene. So, um, you know, if I ever got stuck or, or didn't, or had a gap in what they had given me, um, it, it always felt like I could go back to my training with improv and how does and it, think of that and how does improv help you when you're actually in the room and you're pitching stories and, and, and coming up with joke ideas well that's that's where it feels the most like improv I mean when it is improv because you're bouncing off ideas and and that we all have that experience of just building off the other person and you know our brains are kind of have been worked out in that way for a long time too. So it's, you know, we usually have the script up on the screen now. I mean, in the early days, we didn't have that capability, but um, now we do. And that's really helpful to see um, because for some reason I'm a very, I'm really visual. So if I see the, the dialogue up there, I can pitch off of that and imp like improvise off that, off the script and think of a joke. And, you know, sometimes you have to think of the blow of the scene. And I, I just think it's all just improv and all very fun. That's the, I love that part of my job. And also being on set and pitching new jokes to replace jokes that aren't quite working or to have, just have alts. Um, that's super fun. Um, now you're, you're writing for Maria Bamford's show, Lady Dynamite. Yeah. And uh -huh. it, it's a great show. If people haven't seen it, they really have to check it out. I just, I really Thank enjoy you. it. Um, because it's a heightened version of her own life. And she talks about yeah. stuff that I love to talk about. She struggles with depression. She struggles with money. She struggles with fame. She struggles yes. with career. Uh, she struggles with her parents. Uh, she, um, how do you come up with story ideas uh, for that show? Um, well, we, we really had, we had her in, um, and she'd talk about, you know, her own real life stories, like how she went to, 
you know, she once was on campus, you know, because she tours around the country. At colleges. Doing stand-up, yeah. And she saw a thing about how to deal with race. And it was a group, all white, all white people sitting talking about how you talk to people of color um, and what's appropriate. And we thought it was the funniest thing because it's basically this, you know, <laughs> white group say, saying, how do we talk to people of color is, just, you know, a great start for a story and about how white people are very often uncomfortable about, you know, stepping in it or being, you know, saying the wrong thing and looking like they have white privilege and all of those things that are just, you know, all guilt, all of our, all of our white guilt and, um, and what that means, you know, like, and so we, we explored, you know, the race thing. Now, I think some people watching it, they felt like, um, oh, this didn't really say anything about race, but that was our point was that you're not going to be able to say everything about race in 22 minutes, or actually we do about a half hour on the show. But, um, you know, so it was just kind of opening up that discussion and, and seeing her be awkward about um, how to deal with that, because it was from her real life that she went to this group. Uh, and we thought it was a very funny group <laughs> to go to. Uh, so, you know, she goes, she likes a lot of groups. She likes going to group meetings. She goes to Debtors Anonymous and, you know, a lot of different kinds of groups. Um, so that's featured in our show uh, more than once, different groups. And she, she, she you know, she talks openly about uh, being depressed. I've yeah. certainly struggled with it myself. And how do you, because uh, the show is very effective, how do you make that funny? Is Is there... Do you have to be careful about that? Is there ever like, oh, I think we've gone too far or people won't get that? Um, we never tried to be careful with it. Um, and, you know, I feel like when we wanted to pull back a couple times or, you know, someone had a PC reason to want to pull back, we just looked at like, okay, what's making us uncomfortable about this? And then how can we put that in the story? You know, instead of pulling back and going like, oh, we shouldn't do that. We wanted to illustrate it then because that's how people feel. It, it does make people uncomfortable, certain things. Um, so we really wanted to explore what was when as writers, when we're doing it, what's making us uncomfortable and what's, um, you know, whether it's PC, not being PC or whether it's we're afraid of mental illness. Um, let's put that be the voice of the audience. Some of our audience that might be afraid of mental illness and, and have a character that's in there that is afraid of it. Um, you know, that's how we tried to, um, not pull back from it, uh, and, and kind of cover what anyone would think about it. Why is it so important to, to, to deal with the uncomfortable stuff and not avoid it in comedy? Because I, I think that that's everybody can relate to it. And that's what makes some of the, the stuff funny. Um, obviously, through character and, um, and circumstance, you get funny stuff too. But I do think when you go into places where people, oh my God, I've never talked to any about, anybody about that, how I feel, and they, it's now on the screen... It's, it a validates everybody, um, and their feelings, which I love because it's like, it's like when you read a self-help book and you're like, Oh my God, this is me. I'm not alone. I'm not a freak. I mean, although I am a freak, but you know, you, you have somebody, a group that gets you. And so we, I, I think it's, especially with a show about mental illness and about somebody who's had a breakdown. Um, and Maria says this herself after her stand up, people come up to her and just open up to her like I have breakdown or I've been raped and all this other stuff that has been, you know, that they feel like, oh, my God, I have somebody who has who isn't what I perceive as um, perfect out there and also has a mental illness. And I can now talk to them about it um, or or a tragic thing that happened to me. So I think that that's um, I guess that's more what why people why I like that we didn't hold back. And, um, and then we 
hopefully got comedy out of it as well. <laughs> now you mentioned you uh, self help books. Do you read a lot of self help books? I love self help books. Yes, are I you love re- them. What are your favorites, or what are you reading now? I, I always need new titles. Um, well, my first one I read was Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway, and that one is is I haven't gone back and read it since that time because that was the early eighties. But um, that was my first like. But anytime I'm doing something ne- new, I will remember that book of like, yeah, this is really scary because I've never done this kind of thing. So of course it's going to be scary and that it doesn't mean I don't do it. Um, I just do it anyway. So that was a really like that one really changed my level of what I would go for in my life. Um, cause I always have fear about, uh, anything I haven't done. So me too. Uh, that's a great one. And then I liked Debbie Ford's, um, Dark Side of the Light Chasers. Have you ever read that? No. What's that about? That's about how um, when you hear people say like, oh, you're a mirror for me, or I really hate that guy because he's just a mirror for me. I have to remember he's a mirror for me. It's like how you, like, I don't ever want to be perceived as a bitch or bitchy or, and so I hide, you know, I, I really want to be a nice person. And so there's dark sides of us that we hide. And I think Trump is like everyone's dark side that they hide. And that's why everyone hates him. It's like, oh, my God, you're like the worst person. Um, but we all have the capability to be bitchy or to be all the things that we, all the words we don't like, loser, idiot, um, abandoner, whatever it is, um, you know, that we perceive as a terrible trait as a human. Would you say hide that? Would you say you have a spiritual side? I do. Yeah. I grew up Catholic for 12 years. I went to Catholic school and I never really agreed with the Catholic, um, any of their practices. (laughs) Exactly. Um, I didn't like that people went to confession and they could, you know, have a mortal sin on their soul and then go to confession. They could murder people and go to confession and then go to heaven. Um, but yet somebody could be a great person, not go to confession and not, and go to hell and go to hell. And, you know, so I just didn't, I always question that the birth control issue. Um, and then recently, of course, all the, um, pedophile stuff that they hid. So I'm not a fan of, of the actual, a lot of the rules and, and how they treated stuff. Um, but it did, it did do a it gave me a base of spirituality. And then now I kind of look at, um, my spirit spirituality as like, you know, it's not a, it's not a God with a great, you know, a gray beard and, uh, you know, the way that they, the Catholic church describes our God. It's, I look at it more as the universe, like a lot of people do that. It's, it's a being. And I do think that, you know, our relatives are, are somewhere else when they die. And, you know, I see signs from maybe it's just me looking, me looking into different things that happen, but they're pretty, um, spot on when they happen and seem like a sign from someone who's passed. So I do believe in that. And, and, and how did that spirituality, you had some health issues a couple of years back. How did that help you uh, change your outlook on your career and your life? Um, you know, I didn't really feel like, oh, it's fine. Um, like sometimes people have a a spirituality where they're like, you know, it's okay if I die because I'm, I'm going to live forever. And I'm, I mean, I'm afraid of death. I don't feel like, oh, it's fine because I'm going to go and still, you know, be able to see everybody and be in a better place and all of that. Um, I'm still don't want to die. Um, but then other times I feel very tired and I'm like, it's okay if I die. <laughs> uh, where it's like, I'm exhausted. It's enough already. Like <laughs> it's one giant peace. nap. Like it's a giant yes, nap. Okay. Let me go nap and be at peace. Um, I've had that thought many times. It's very, I wouldn't do anything about it, but I just like, you know, when I've been really sick, I, you know, it's just the pain gets too much physical pain and you're just like, Oh my God, let it end. Um, and you had cancer, right? I had cancer last year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this year. And, 
like I found out uh, end of August and then I um, had a lumpectomy end of August and they, then I did radiation. Um, I didn't have to do chemo. Thank God I'm doing a pill instead of uh, actual chemo. Um, and it's a pill that a lot of people take for bre- after breast cancer and they usually take it for five years and I'll, I'll probably have to take it for 10 years to just make up that difference of chemo. Um, cause they said the chemo, uh, would not be effective, uh, with my type of cancer. So, um, but it's all clear. I'm gone. I don't have cancer. So that's good. And what changes <laughs> in your life when you have, when you're a cancer survivor? How do priorities um, change? Well, or do they? What I, what I didn't expect priorities, um, don't change. I mean, I, not for me, they have not in the sense of, uh, uh, well, there's a little bit of like, well, it's not as bad as cancer <laughs> when you, when you like, are dealing, dealing with stuff, you're like, this doesn't really matter. Um, the stress stuff. Uh, and, but I do, I did, uh, get a lot of gifts from it, um, that I didn't expect to get. Uh, you know, of course it's devastating to hear it. I was distraught. Um, and, but what I really got from it and I might start crying is, um, just seeing how much people love me in my life. And that was just, a um, the biggest gift of my life. Um, and, uh, you know, I know that everybody's there around me in my life and I know that they all love me, but to see how people went into action in supporting me and, you know, I didn't put it on Facebook, uh, and I didn't, uh, I just never found the words to do that, uh, and never felt, felt like I had the energy to deal with talking to everybody on Facebook about it. Um, and I also didn't want, this is, I guess, going to the spiritual side. I didn't want everyone picturing me bald and dying. So, um, because I do, I did felt like that is an energy I didn't want to have out there. Um, and I didn't want people to worry as well. So I just kind of kept it with the people who are in my day to day and, um, you know, uh, that kept it for me in a manageable space to, uh, to just be supported and get through it. Um, in, in like the most positive way I could. And what's one thing that, that you look back and like, oh my God, I still can't believe that my friends did this for me during that time. Well, you know, it's the little things like, you know, people brought, um, Joanna Stein just, she was like, I'm coming over with five, she brought like five meals from Hugo's restaurant, my favorite that's right around the corner and just dropped them off. Dennis Govins came and took my garbage out for me because um, during my cancer, Jeff's mom uh, found out she had stage four cancer and only had a few weeks. She only lived a few weeks. So he had to go out there and be with her the, her last couple weeks of her life um, right after or during my cancer. Uh, so, and I couldn't lift at that point. So could lift anything. So, uh, so, you know, Dennis came and took the garbage out for me. I mean, like people, you know, Tracy came and, um, Tracy Thorpe, Tracy Thorpe came and brought me groceries. And I mean, I'm, I'm skipping people. Susie, um, Gardner would bake me like the most natural sugar-free banana cakes, banana bread, and bring me stuff all the time. Um, Amanda, like all my friends were there for me, whether it was like, me having a breakdown on the phone, Chris Cahill, I had a breakdown on the phone with her. Um, and she was, you know, just the support and how people were there. Jeff was amazing, of course. And, you know, everyone just kind of, when they heard they came with stuff, either food or help. And, um, and Linda Holney wanted me to get on a meal train thing, thing but I never did that for whatever reason, I was just busy and didn't get to get to actually get that going. And, uh, Oh, work. Um, the one day I had to have, um, a difficult test on my lumpectomy site. <laughs> and, uh, and I was really scared about it. And I, I got it done in the morning. I came into work 
and they had a surprise puppy party for me. <clears throat> I turned the corner and there's like a whole room full of puppies for me to play with <laughs> just in our office. Uh, so that was huge. They, they had through a surprise puppy party for me. Uh, so for like an hour, I just got in with all these puppies and played with these puppies. It was amazing. Did you, did, did you they also I, set up for me to meet a panda in in the um, Atlanta Zoo, uh, and that was also amazing. That my work did that for me too. Did you ever, uh, in your darkest hours, like at a restaurant, it's like you're not getting a table or the plumber. You called the plumber six times and they're not showing up. You're like, for God's sakes, I have cancer. Did you ever play the cancer card? Oh my God, yes, and. I really played it with telemarketers because for some reason I'm on this like get solar panels for your home list and they call nonstop. And I had to always answer the phone because of tests and stuff of numbers I didn't recognize. So I'd answer the phone and they'd it'd be the same place, solar thing. And I was like, look, I cannot, I can't deal with this. I have cancer. <laughs> it's like, I have to just tell you, I'm, I, you know, I have to answer the phone because my doctors, but I please take me off the list. And then I'd get the, a call, another call, like two hours later from them, like a different person. So I played the cancer card a lot with them. That was my main with telemarketers. We've got to wrap this up. And, I, uh, okay. and you were, and I'd like to, you know, because I always can bring stuff. To, I can take the, the most joyful things and bring it down. So I'd like to end on a joyful note. You were part of an improv group uh, called uh, Stacy's Not Here with yes. Dave Rozowski, Pete Gardner, Pete Marietta, uh, Evan Gore, D. Ryan. And you said yes. that this group brought you a lot of joy. Why is so it much joy? In what way did it bring yeah. you joy? Tell tell me about it. Why it's important to do projects that bring you joy? Um, well, first I want to acknowledge Evie Peck and Chris Wells and uh, Carlos Jacot and I think Scott. Yeah, Scott um, Adsit also sat in with us. Uh, they, they were Evie and Chris were also a part of the original group, and then Carlos came in for a bit, and also uh, Scott Adsit sat in with us. So I just want to say that they were part of it too. But um, I just think if you, when you find something that gives you joy, just keep doing it. And that, uh, that's just, that, that's so basic. I don't even know. That's, uh, I don't even need to say that, but, um, and it also got me through the lean years out here where you're like working three jobs, just trying to get your rent and, you know, um, and that group of people, we just had a um, a trust and a uh, fun kind of way to play together where, and it truly was just following uh, the rules of improv of yes, ending each other and being there for each other 100% on stage. And, you know, anytime I felt, um, which was often because of my insecurities, anytime I felt like, oh, I'm in my head or... Um, you know, I'm not having a good show tonight or I just can't get myself into a great place because of whatever is going on in my life or whatever, they would just be there for me. And, you know, we do the same thing if somebody can come in in a grumpy mood or, you know, it, it was gone within five minutes, you know, it just, it really is a group that, um, is all about just having fun together on stage and, really just being there for each other it's it's just like how you know you get those magical casts on sitcoms that's I feel I feel like that's what we were we were to each other we just worked really well together and clicked and how does you know the magical cast and that you know uh, Stacy does it just happen is it just is, is it just a synchronicity thing that happens when you get a group like Stacy's not here or, or, um, a magical cast on a sitcom. Yeah, I think that it is kind of just happens. I mean, we, uh, Peter kind of just pieced together and somebody, I think D said, bring in Teresa Mulligan. I hadn't even met Peter. And at that time when we really first started and, um, then I hadn't met Evie or Chris, but I just think that the, those people, and there are many people like this that I've worked with, almost everybody I've worked with in, in improv, um, that those people, they are so open and warm and loving people and in their improv, especially that they're, you, 
you just, we all got the sense that we weren't being judged in this particular group of people. So I think that that really was kind of the key to making it magical too. Is this like, we're just here to play. And we did try to, you know, we do think seriously about what openings should we do and that opening didn't work as well. And um, let's change it to this. And we did think about our show and the structure of it. Um, so it wasn't just willy nilly, but, um, it did, you know, we did come from a place of non-judgment. Uh, we've got to wrap this up. We end the, okay. po- the podcast. This has been so much fun. Uh, we end the podcast with the same question. What piece of advice would you give to someone starting out in improv today? Um, wow, that's a good question. I would, I would just say to get in there and be in the moment and, and add to what you're, that's the, that's the, that's the golden rule. Just add to what, help your partner and add to what your partner is trying to, to start to build and do it together. That's when, like when I get in my head in improv, that's what I have to like stop and go, wait a minute. I just have to work with this other person. I don't have to have funny lines. I don't have to have, um, brilliant stuff. You know, it's hard to think ahead of time. Oh, I have to, I have to be brilliant or I have to be super funny. Um, because then that's going to be very hard to get there. So I always have to remind myself, Oh no, I just have to go out on stage and, and listen to my partner and build with them and build off of them and help them. Um, and that always grounds me back into the scene when I can do that. Teresa Mulligan, thank you so much. I'm glad this finally worked out. Being our guest me too. on Improv Nerd. Can I thank one other person yes. for my uh, yes. cancer gift? Yes. Um, Eric, Eric Stone Street, uh, I called immediately because he works for Stand Up for Cancer. And um, I, it was in my full-on breakdown of just finding out I had cancer. And he was so sweet and wonderful and was like, you know, it's all going to be okay. It's so doable now. They just take it out and, you know, you're going to, I'm telling you, you're going to be fine. And he hooked me up with um, the head of Stand Up for Cancer and he, and she hooked me up with my oncologist, one of the best oncologists out here. And I, you know, and of course my doctors were amazing too, that hooked me up with my surgeon out here. But I just wanted to thank Eric as well, because I mentioned a lot of people and I, and I'm sure I'm forgetting people who came over and brought me stuff, Carla and Erica. And there's a lot of, there's a ton of people, but, and Pam Brady, who I worked with and Bree and all the, all the people I worked with really, everybody helped me. And, but I didn't want to leave Eric out because he was one of the first people I talked to when I had it. And he immediately got on getting me an oncologist and, and getting me to stand up for cancer. And what is stand up for cancer? Um, they do um, stand up for uh, to raise uh, cancer awareness and also money for for cancer. And they, but what I learned through this experience was that uh, the head of the organization and many people in the organization they will I mean they will hook you up with whoever's in your town, whoever like they do this every day with people with women with with breast cancer and other cancers and you know men as well. Um, and just finding them, their team, you know, cause you, you, when you get it, you're just like, what do I do now? You know, like, and your doctors will help you, but what if you don't have a great doctor too? I had great doctors, but, um, but it's also like, that's a whole other area that, you know, you want to get the best team or be guided in through that. So that's what they do for people as well. And, and the, you know, Rusty at Santa for Cancer who helped me was just so amazing. And in talking to me that day, um, just was, she really calmed me and made me feel like I could do this. You know, I could get through it and I was going to beat this and everything. So I started to cry again. <clears throat> anyway, now we're not, now we're not ending on a high note. No, we we're, this is the best high note. You we crying. are because I'm cured. Yes. Um, yeah. Cause it's out. So anyway, I just, and you know, if anybody, uh, hopefully somebody can um, take, you know, support Stand Up for Cancer and also uh, get support from them if they need it. And we'd like to thank you again, Teresa Mulligan. Thank you. For being our guest on this episode of Improv Nerd. Thank you. And there you have it. Another episode of Improv Nerd is in the can. And I want to thank our guest, Teresa Mulligan Rosenthal, for taking time out of her schedule in Los Angeles and talking so honestly and so candidly, not only about 
insecurities, but also about her cancer and uh, what changed for her ever, uh, after having that. I'd like to thank my producer, Dan Schiffmacher. He's the one who makes me sound so slick and so professional. Without Dan, you wouldn't be hearing my voice right now. Also, Sam Bowers, who is the uh, director of Improv Nerd, and uh, also my wife, Lauren Corain, for uh, helping me with the questions. If you want more information about me, Jimmy Corain, and my award-winning improv classes, intensives, and workshops, and to sign up for the Improv Nerd newsletter, go to my website at jimmycorain.com. Also, follow us on social media. Uh, You can follow us on Facebook. Like the Improv Nerd Facebook page, because it really helps with my low self-esteem. Follow us on Twitter, which is improv underscore nerd. And then check out our YouTube channel, uh, Dan just put some great clips from our Rachel Dratch episode on there from Second City, so check that out. Also, we are so lucky to be part of this podcast collective called feralaudio.com. Check out some of their innovative and hilarious podcasts. They are they're, they're some of the funniest podcasts out there. And also, if you get a chance and you want to... Um, Help us out here on the show. Go to feralaudio.com and make your purchases. You Buy now. I think it's a buy now portal or something. So if you're going to buy something on Amazon, go to feralaudio.com. Before that, make the purchase and a couple pennies come our way to keep this this thing going, this podcast going. So uh, that's a great way to help support um, Feral Audio. And also you can go to iTunes and write a nice review on Improv Nerd because it really would help me very much. Uh, Thank you so much for listening and all your support over the last, my God, over five years we've been doing this podcast. And until next time, remember, walk, don't run. Hello, I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Yunt. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. (laughs) Suicide Buddies. (laughs) That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself (laughs) is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, he's in a castle in Poland. He's Like, I mean, if you lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. (laughs) 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 That's like literally what happened to Batman. <laughs> he literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a rich... I don't know what you want from me. And uh, my, and my a... girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. Help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My. Uh, my... <laughs> 